Let's pray. O God, the creator of all, whose son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start with an apology. Um, This class will be a little different in that uh, we will be looking at the next section of Scripture, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, but I'm going to spend a a pretty good part of the time on one phrase in verse 1. It's, you can take, the student out of the seminary, but unfortunately you cannot take the seminary out of the student. So we're going we're gonna to focus on one phrase for a little bit, and that's because understanding the phrase is important for recognizing not just the meaning of the text, but also how it relates to us today. Our outline is going to be as follows. The last days from 2 Timothy 3.1. Marks of the Distressing Times from 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, and the Limited Victory of Evil from 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 9. So we are starting with 2 Timothy 3, 1. St. Paul writes, You must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. And yes, our phrase that we will be focusing on is in the last days. We are taking a detour in order to dig into everyone's favorite topic, eschatology. I have already tackled women's ordination, slavery, and obedience to our government, so I might as well just check off all the hot-button issues while we're here. I wonder, what do you picture when you hear the words the last days. Do you imagine chaos, disorder, anarchy, and war? Or do you imagine the return of Christ descending with clouds and how glorious it will be when he sets all things right, wipes every tear from our eye, and makes everything sad come untrue? Perhaps neither of those things. Perhaps the whole thing is so confusing to you that you just pretend like you've never heard the term spoken before. Eschatology is the study of last things. It comes from the Greek word eschaton, which we translate as last or end. And typically when we talk about eschatology, we have in mind the events that will or will not occur at the end of history. Biblical eschatology, however, takes a much wider view in that it culminates in the end of history. And it explains along the way all things that lead to that culmination. A better way of understanding how the, the Bible talks about the end times or the last days is the concept of telos. Telos is another Greek word, and I'm going to start trying to get away from using a bunch of Greek soon, but telos like eschaton, is often translated by the word end. The difference is that telos doesn't mean end in the sense of the last thing in a sequence, like the last days being the the days that 
come at the end of history. Telos means end in the sense of goal or purpose. So, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Does anyone here know the answer? We've just outed all of our Presbyterians. (laughs) Never. (laughs) To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is our purpose here on earth? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we think in terms of end goal or purpose, we are close to, if not in, in the realm of biblical eschatology. The universe is not hurtling towards some unknown end, but rather it is being sovereignly directed by God towards his gracious goal of the restoration of all things. Chief among all things is the redemption and the restoration of sinners through the gospel. The redemption of the cosmos, of creation, and all other things comes to serve the final redemption of God's people. So as God's people goes, the universe goes. Kent Ebauer defines eschatology as both the direction and the goal of God's active covenant faithfulness in and for his created order. And so in one sense, when we think of eschatology simply as that thing that's going to happen in the future, it actually began in one sense in Genesis 3. But in a completely different sense, it also was the foreordained plan of God from before the foundation of the world. And this is the framework that we must adopt if we want to understand what Paul means when he says the last days. Now Paul gets this, te- gets this term or phrase from the Old Testament itself. And in the Old Testament, it gets used particularly in the, the later prophets, particularly to tie together all the disparate threads of God's plan for redemption and restoration. These threads begin in Genesis 3.15, where God promises to crush the head of the serpent and rescue humanity through the bruised and bitten heel of one of Adam and Eve's promised children. That promise was then given to Abraham and Sarah and to their children, And eventually, it was given to the entire nation of Israel, who were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation whose task was to be a a blessing for all other nations, pointing them to the one true God. Israel failed in their calling. They began to worship the idols of other nations rather than pointing those nations to the one true God. And like Adam and Eve's exile from Eden, Israel was sent into exile, and the temple, the very sign of God's presence among his people, was destroyed. You can imagine the Israelites' fear and their confusion at that point. Did God abandon us 
forever. Was our God somehow conquered? Were the gods of Babylon and Assyria greater than our God? Does our God even exist? Into this confusion and fear, God sent prophets to speak to Israel in their exile. And these prophets explained how Israel's idolatry idolatry led them to their exile and reminded them that God, being faithful to his covenant, would one day bring them all back home through a new exodus. They would be led by a new Moses and there would be a new temple. All of this, the prophets said, would occur in the last days. And this is the context which we find St. Peter on the day of Pentecost quoting from the prophet Joel. This, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The arrival of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost told the first century Christians that the last days had begun. They testified to this in their own writings. For example, St. John writes that in Jesus, the word became flesh and lived among us, literally pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. This allusion to the tabernacle resolves itself a chapter later in John 2 when Jesus declares that he is the new and true temple of God, the place where God's presence dwells amongst his people. Jesus is Emmanuel. St. Matthew writes his gospel focusing on literal mountaintop experiences, most notably the Sermon on the Mount. And the Apostle Matthew uses these mountaintop experiences particularly to present Jesus as a new Moses with a better law. You have heard it said, but I say to you. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find Jesus going out into the wilderness and facing temptation, recapitulating both the failure of Adam and Eve and their temptation in Eden and Israel's sin in the wilderness journey, causing them to wander about for 40 years. 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus because he succeeds. 40 years for Israel where they fail. Once he succeeds in overcoming Satan's temptation, he crosses back over a river into the promised land to launch his public ministry. The end of an exodus into the promised land. The entirety of the New Testament points to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, the yes and the amen to all the promises God gives us in the Old Testament. Every single one. Yet, we do not find the promised restoration of all things occurring fully in Christ's first coming. Things are still broken. What went wrong? Absolutely nothing. God's plan, the mystery revealed in Christ, has always been that redemption and restoration would be accomplished at Christ's first advent and brought to completion at his second. 
in the meantime, what he has accomplished gets applied to us through faith. The last days began with the incarnation, and they will continue on until Christ returns. Finally, let's get back to the text. Therefore, when St. Paul writes to Timothy that you must understand this, that in the last days distressing times will come, he is not suddenly changing the subject and jumping ahead more than 2,000 years into the future. The distressing times that he mentions includes their present. Timothy's difficult ministry in Ephesus and his suffering through it, and St. Paul's persecution, imprisonment, and eventual martyrdom at the hands of Rome. They are in the distressing times of the last days. Paul is saying, in effect, don't be surprised at what we're going through, Timothy. We're in the last days, and we knew that opposition like this would come. Remain faithful. That brings us to verses 2 through 5, where St. Paul explains why the last days that they find themselves in, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second, are going to be so distressing. He writes, Distressing times will come, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligate. I probably have a difference. I do have a different translation up there. That's okay. Uh, Brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And if you read some commentaries or websites on this who misunderstand what Paul means when he says the last days, they're like, you know, we... it. We really are living in a time where people are lovers of themselves. And I'm like, have you read history? (laughs) People are becoming lovers of money. They're not becoming lovers of money. They always have been. This isn't a description of what people will be like at the end of history. It's a description of what people were like, are like, and have been like since Genesis 3. The only thing that's changed is that God's people are now stewards of the gospel message. And that stewardship brings with it a particular opposition. Not a different opposition. A particular opposition. Um, I'm not going to go through each of these descriptions. Uh, We've talked about several of them already in various other classes. If you're new... Sorry, uh, go, go listen to the rest of the classes. There's 10. Um, but regarding verses 2 through 5, um, I want to focus on the structure of the passage, and I promised I wasn't going to do this one, and I did it anyways. This is a visual. Um, sorry, Internet people that will be listening later. This is a, a visual of the structure of the passage. I'll try and explain it in words. First, the list begins and ends with disordered love. I had a very long quote from St. 
Augustine here that I removed for you, so you're welcome. Um, disordered loves, lovers of self, money, pleasure, rather than God. Because, second, because of their disordered loves, people are proud and arrogant and swollen with conceit. Verse 2b and 4b, 2b. I'm trying really hard not to make a 2b joke here. Help me, Lord. Um, third, people are abusive. Uh, I have recklessness up here, too. Um, in the material for the class, I do actually go through each of these categories. Um, the better presentation for today, since I'm skipping most of that, was just the recklessness that occurs here. But if you look in the notes for the class, I actually talk about the abusiveness and the dehumanization of others. And there's a particular trend in... Um, 2C through 3A, where uh, there is a violence being enacted upon one's own family. I'll, I'll leave that one to you. We're going to say reckless today. But abusive and uncaring of others in a reckless way. Able to brutalize even their own families. Oh, I do have it in here. You're welcome. Finally, at the center of the passage, St. Paul says that people are slanderous. Now, the word that St. Paul puts at the end of this funnel, slanderers, is the word diaboloi. The plural form of diabolos. The very same word that scripture uses when we read the name Satan or the devil. In Hebrew, it uses something else, but in the, in the Septuagint, it, it uses this term as well. The slanderous one. The context that this is found in, particularly the end of chapter 2, is what makes this word choice so interesting. Because in 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26, which comes just before this passage, mere verses before. St. Paul writes of the false teachers. Um, well, he writes of, of uh, ministers' response uh, to, to the false teachers in terms of gentleness and kindness in preaching the gospel to them and calling them to repentance. Perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The phrase of the devil is to diabolu, the same word used as slanderers in our passage today. There's a parallel passage you might remember in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And in that passage, St. Paul reveals that the source of the false teacher's doctrine and ministry were deceitful spirits and demons. And that the false teacher's own consciences were branded as with a hot iron. I argued then, and I have, am able to show you the support now, that this branding was not a sense of a conscience being seared because we've sinned so many times, we're unfeeling towards that sin anymore. It was a branding. 
It was Satan's branding on the conscience of the false teachers. He owned them. Or, as St. Paul says here, captured by the devil to do his will. The use of diaboloi in verse 3 makes the same point. The chief description of the Ephesian opponents, indeed all false teachers, is that they are bedeviled. They are to diabolu, of the devil, devil, and captured by his snare. But then in verse 5, he gives another description. So, we know that verses 2 through 4 were about the false teachers particularly because of how he, uh, how he then ends with verse 5 and then into 6, 9. Um, in, in verse 5, he summarizes the Ephesians' opponents as holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. This year, we were blessed under the providence of God with the emergence of Brood X, the 17-year cicadas. <laughs> they emerged seemingly ex nihilio and quickly took over, and everything became noise all the time. An incessant chirping that droned on and on and on and on and on. And besides the noise... However, the biggest sign of their emergence was the hollowed-out shells that they left behind. When St. Paul says that they have an outward form of godliness, he is saying that the false teachers, the opponents in Ephesus, who incessantly chirp about this or that esoteric issue, are basically just hollowed-out shells of godliness. They deny its power, meaning the power through which godliness is made manifest. What is this power, the power of godliness? Well, if you remember in week three, we spent a lot of time with 1 Timothy 3.16. And in that passage, it speaks of, rightly translated by the NIV, I think, the mystery from which true godliness springs. And then St. Paul quotes from a creedal hymn that regards the revelation of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ as the source of true godliness. Throughout this study, the constant refrain has been that St. Paul's expectation of good works, his commands towards godliness, and the behavior that conforms to the gospel, first Timothy 1.11, I believe, is always, always predicated on the proclamation of the gospel, belief, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In contrast, the false teachers have exchanged the gospel and the Holy Spirit for arguing over words, constant debate, and division, rendering their ministry as devoid of power as the sun-baked cicada shells that we step on absentmindedly. 
if that's true, how has it come to be that their powerless ministry has been so successful in deceiving the Ephesian Christians? Because remember, this is now several years on from 1 Timothy's writing, which was prompted by the emergence of these very same false teachers. Verse 5 ends with a simple command of the people we've just spoken about. Avoid them. Now this phrase, if you've been with us the whole time, is really a summary of all the wisdom that St. Paul has already shared regarding how to handle false teachers. Rebuke, remove, and avoid. In verses 6 and 7, St. Paul gives a concrete example of why we, why Timothy and Paul themselves in their ministry together should rebuke, remove, and avoid the false teachers. In verses 8 and 9, he gives one illustration that further explains their apparent victory and success in turning Ephesians away from the gospel with such a powerless ministry. So first, we're going to look at the reason, the final reason that we have in the pastorals for rebuking, removing, and avoiding the false teachers. And it's, it is very concrete, it is a very specific scenario. And then we'll finish out with the illustration. The reason, from verses 6 and 7, For among them, the false teachers, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. See, in verses 2 through 5, St. Paul described the depravity of all of us, really, but with particular sights towards the false teachers at Ephesus. And here he gives just one concrete example of how they abused, dehumanized, and brutalized others. Some of the false teachers crept into households, captured weak women, burdened with their sins, and led astray by various passions. In other words, these pastors preyed on women in their congregation who were most in need of true pastoral help, pastoral counsel, and pastoral guidance. These were women who were enslaved by their sins, and they were always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. There's actually a hint of sarcasm in that last description, but we shouldn't hear Paul saying this also with a hint of victim shaming. There, there is some sarcasm. And it's that these women who are so enslaved by their sin have fallen for the false teacher's love of argument and debate and who now hang on every word that the false teachers say. They were always learning from the false teachers and therefore 
never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth due to the false doctrine being taught. Let's be clear. These false teachers are predators. They took advantage of the spiritual immaturity and the neediness which results from the crushing weight of unrepentant sin and use their immaturity and enslavement to gain a sense of trust and spiritual authority and then crept into their homes and captured them. I don't think I need to get into the details here, but I will remind you of their hypocrisy as we saw in 1 Timothy where they ripped apart vulnerable (laughs) families by teaching that Christians should abstain from marriage and sex. Hypocritical predators. Rebuke, remove. And they are embodying the distressing times of the last days. To this example, he... St. Paul follows up with an illustration. And this illustration, I think, is meant to give Timothy hope. Because not only were the false teachers being successful in drawing people away, as we just saw, they were brutalizing the people that Timothy loved most and was called to shepherd Though the false teachers were having an even lengthy period of apparent success and victory, God's promises are true and he will prevail. All of history is going towards its intended conclusion. The example is as follows from verses 8 and 9. Just as Jonas and Jambres, or Jambres opposed Moses... So these men also opposed the truth, these men being the false teachers. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. St. Paul is referencing a story from Exodus chapter 7 and 9, the first three of the ten plagues that God sent as a punishment uh, and warning to the Egyptians. With each plague that God sent, Jonas and Jambres, or Jambres, Egyptian wise men and magicians, called forth the very same plague in a contest of power between God and the Egyptians. The magicians were successful. And they were successful, as the text says, by doing the same by their own secret arts for the first few miracles. Then we read in Exodus 8 with the third plague Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. 
So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The Egyptian magicians, try saying that three times fast. Surprised I got it out once, to be honest. (laughs) The Egyptian magicians had success after success. From the miracle of turning the staff into the serpent, into a serpent, until the plague of frogs. Until that point, the magicians seemed to be just as powerful as God himself. And thus, Pharaoh's heart was hardened against hearing the warnings of God. Similarly, the situation in Ephesus seemed dire because the false teachers appeared to have success after success, victory after victory. Their successes cause a hardness in the hearts of some of the congregation of Ephesus. But God would not let this continue forever. He would put a stop to their predation, devastation, and destruction. There would come a day that the victory of the false teachers would stop, like the magicians, by the finger of God. And they would either be moved to repentance by it or crushed underneath it for the evil that they worked. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world where evil and sin seem to have their way. Success after success, victory after victory. Evil inspires a false confidence because it has been given a short leash. A limited and restrained realm of success. Take heart, friends. We are living in the last days, and that is good news. While the last days might be marked by suffering and difficulty, history is not hurtling towards an unknown and chaotic end. Rather, God is directing all history towards his intended purpose, his telos. And that purpose is in part, but not the whole, as St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the destruction of humanity's ultimate enemy. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. And for since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in their own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jumping down a few verses. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God promises us that all evil and all suffering, all despair and all sadness and pain will be swallowed up by the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his incarnation, life, and death, through his vindication in the resurrection, the first fruit of death's death, through his enthronement as the reigning king over the entirety of the cosmos, at his ascension, and through his current session, through the spread of the gospel, and in the full display of his defeat of Satan, sin, and death at his second coming, everything sad is going to come untrue, and death will die. Already, death's head has been crushed by the cross, and we are merely dealing with the spasms and wild jerks of his body, not yet realizing he is already dead. As we read in the very close of Holy Scripture, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen.